Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before the Almighty God, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a light to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen me to deliver a word of power so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. I'd like to speak today on the topic of the miracle formula. Now our theme verse comes from Luke 17:19. And there it says, and Jesus said to him, "Stand up and go, your faith has made you well." We're going to get there momentarily. A miracle is an extraordinary event that cannot be explained by natural phenomenon that is intended to bring awe and glory to God. God is the author, he is the one who executes, and he is also the one who finishes all miracles. God intimately molds all miracles as a potter molds clay. Therefore, in becoming familiar with God's product, the miracle, one can also better understand God. And if you have a proper understanding and knowledge of God, you will then know what he expects and what he requires of you or what conditions need to be met so that you may receive a miracle if he wills it. The miracle formula, therefore, is like looking at the nutritional information on the side of a miracle. It tells you its ingredients, it tells you the fat content, and it tells you how much protein, so now you can get ready to receive what God has intended for you. So this is the miracle formula. And everyone should write this down. So you begin with an unmet need. You then have a person who has faith in the Lord, which leads to obedience. And then you have a mentality and a reality. And these two exist on a sliding scale. Mentality is where you place your ultimate trust. Reality is your reliance on what you can actually see or perceive by the senses. In the context of a miracle, it always involves much more mentality or trust in God than accepting the reality that's in front of you, which is why it says minus reality. Now, this is where many people get into trouble, because if you put too much stock or too much weight into mentality, you can say things like, I put all of my trust and faith in God, but divorce yourself from reality. You would do something like not pay your mortgage ever and say, if the Lord wills it, he'll pay it for me. It doesn't work like that. 
when David went up against Goliath, he had a mentality that trusted in God, which therefore gave him drive to directly confront his reality. So he never denied or rejected his reality. The flip side to that is when you put too much stock in reality that you forget about God. This week, someone I respect very much said, Sadafel, what have you personally learned in preparing the sermon? And it clicked immediately. Here's my problem. I focus so much on reality, I often forget about God. Because too much emphasis on reality leads to what? It leads to perfectionism, it leads to calculation, and leads to self-reliance. So my personal problem is that I may have gotten my vessel ready, but I put a cover over it so God can't put anything in. The next part of the formula is divine provision which is the miracle itself. Now, what do you notice? The miracle formula doesn't end in the miracle. The miracle formula ends in glory. Because the purpose of any miracle is not the miracle itself. The miracle is a means to an end. Which is why in 2015, you can look at any prosperity gospel and then declare it a fraud. Why? Because the purpose of God's provision is never the materialism in and of itself. It's also glorification of him. A miracle is an acute event. So why would you ever limit God by defining him by something temporary? The real power lies in the eternal God behind the miracle. So, let's make sure we're clear. No one can plug themselves into the miracle formula and expect to get a predictable result. Because I, as I said first, God is in charge of every facet of the miracle. But understanding this formula, you can better prepare yourself to what God may have in store for your life. So if you are willing, ready, and able to learn how you can prepare your vessel to receive God's blessing. Say amen. First point. Miracles take before they give. Miracles take before they give. First Kings 17.10-16. to 16. So Elijah arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go. 
do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. So let's make sure we're clear. This miracle was a divine provision of bread and oil during a time of drought. So let's understand this miracle. Before this miracle even gets set up, it happens in Zarephath. Why is location important? There was a queen at the time, her name was Jezebel. She was really big into false god worship. Her father was from Zarephath. This is his hometown. Bible scholars also think that at the time, Zarephath was the origin of false god worship. It was also outside of the promised land, which means everyone who was religious and holy did not live there. And before this miracle even gets gets set up, Elijah has to go directly into the center of this town. So let's all break down barriers and be honest. Think of that place where you think the people there are nasty. Think of the place where you say they're all sinners, there's no, they're no good, nothing can save them. That was Zarephath. According to Jewish folklore, they even called the inhabitants there dogs, unclean and unworthy to hear the word of God. So before the miracle with the widow ever happens, Elijah has to go into this place that's considered filthy, disgusting, and nasty, and bless someone else and route to his bigger and better things. Because as you may or may not know, this little side story in Zarephath is just a minor bump in the road for Elijah to do wonderful things. It involves fire and grandstanding, and it's beautiful. But before he can do that, he must first go to a place out of his comfort zone. So in the story, you may not be the widow. You may actually be Elijah. You may be en route to something miraculous and fantastic. But in order for you to get there, you first have to go someplace nasty and bless someone else first. Notice also, The widow was not searching for a miracle. The miracle found her. Miracles take before they give. So what did the miracle take? One, first give up your water. The text says, Elijah tells the widow, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. This is a big deal. Why? This request came during a time of drought. There was no rain for years, which meant what? The water, although not inherently valuable, was very, very scarce. 
and she was down to her last bit of water because she was planning on making a final meal for her and her son so they could go and die. It was her last bit. And Elijah says, give it up. Not only that, miracles take before they give. He then asks her, after she's en route to get the water, he says, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. So now he goes asking for one scarce resource, some of what she had, to all of what she had during a time when she had nothing. It gets even better, though, because miracles take before they give. Then Elijah says, not only do all that, but don't serve you and your son first. Serve me first. The text says, make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. And then is when the miracle happens, when there's a divine provision during the time of the drought for bread and water. Now here's a, a key point to extract from this story. Some unmet needs require a miracle, but thinking all unmet needs require divine provision can lead to deficit thinking. Let me say that again. Some unmet needs require a miracle, but thinking all unmet needs require divine provision can lead to deficit thinking. Here's the problem. In our human mentality, if we lack resources, our natural instinct is to conserve. If the gas barometer on your car is on E, the last thing you're going to do is drive to California. If all you have in your cabinets at home is one can of tuna, you're not going to be splurging on tuna for the next couple of weeks. But look what happened to this widow. She actually lacked resources, but she did not allow her reality to define her mentality. In having nothing, what her miracle required is that she give all of it up before she received something. And here's a deficit. If you have convinced yourself that the only thing that can save you is a miracle or divine provision. You have therefore admitted you're lacking resources. As a result, you don't give up. But what did this story tell us? In order to get, she first had to give up. Why? If your focus is on the miracle, you're going to have deficit thinking. But if your focus is on God, is God ever limited? He has an eternal wealth of resources. Therefore, your reality doesn't define how you think. Because as Philippians 4.19 says, and my God will supply some of your needs, all of your needs, according to whose riches? His riches. A mentality of eternal resources. His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So the widow teaches us that scraping together the little that she did have fueled her miracle. Now, why would the miracle take before it gives? Why would she have to give up before she got? 
because if she received a divine provision without sacrificing first, she would be godless in her blessing. She could have worshipped the devil and got her miracle without having first to sacrifice to God. She could have been an atheist. And in her blessing, she would have carried with her the same thinking prior to without sacrifice. Miracles are always a multiplier. They're not a creator. They never create virtue. They never install righteousness in you. They only multiply what's already in your being. Which is why if you act a certain way, if you have no resources, and then God gives you a plentitude of resources, the same mentality you had it with before, you're now going to act with. Which is why this woman had to give up before she got. And here's the dirtiest part of this miracle. Before the widow, the widow's obedience in this miracle set her up for one where she had to give up even more. The next few verses in Kings tell us that the woman found her only son without breath. She then goes to Elijah and says, hey man, what's up? This is not right. Elijah in distress goes to God and says, Lord, why have you sent me to bring iniquity on this woman's house? It is then that Elijah prays to God, stretches himself over the boy, and the Lord hears Elijah's prayer and breathes new life into the child. And it is only this woman's obedience in a natural sense, in giving up her natural resources, that set her up to now have a spiritual miracle with the return of life. God physically breathing his spirit back into this child. And again, the miracle formula point is always glory. At the end of all of that, what did the woman say in 1 Kings 17.24? Now the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She went from hesitating to giving up water to proclaiming the name of God in a town that didn't even think God existed. And there's your glory. The end of the miracle formula. So again, miracles take before they give. Second point, turn to John 2. God may answer your request with a dirty miracle. God may answer your request with a dirty miracle. So John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, there is a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, 
containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which, has become, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, but when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs did Jesus this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So to understand this miracle of turning water into wine you have to understand at the time weddings were an extremely big deal. They were a big deal because the family throwing the wedding, their entire reputation was on the line. They could go on for seven days or more, and there was a free flow of wine, food, and celebration. So if you failed at throwing a good party at a wedding, your entire family's reputation was now destroyed. So when Mary says, they have no wine, some Bible scholars even think it was Jesus' family's wedding or she was intimately involved with preparation because she has a concern over the lack of wine, the wine running out. So she turns to Jesus, she turns to her son and basically says, hey God, do something. Christ's response is, what's that got to do with me? How often do we do that? How often do we turn to God and say, hey God, do something? And God either explicitly or in his absence says, what's that got to do with me? You may have ran out of data on your cell phone plan this month. And you said, please God, give me a miracle. Make Verizon not count this. And God says, what's that got to do with me? When my wife at home walks into her walk-in closet, then walks out of her walk-in closet, then tells me, I have nothing to wear. I have new shoes. My response is, what's that got to do with me? But it happens all the time. God, please do something. What's that got to do with me? The next thing Mary says is what? Whatever he says to you, do it. The first thing she says is they have no wine. Jesus says something which is a reality which basically says, this is not my battle. But her mentality says, Jesus is going to do something. Which means that her way of thinking isn't drawing upon Jesus' response. Her mentality is divergent from the reality. So again... Jesus ends up turning water into wine. But this is why this miracle is dirty. And be very, very careful what you ask for when you, said, when you say, God, please do something. The six stone water pots which Jesus used to turn water into wine were Jewish purification vessels. 
And those vessels had a tremendous potential for purification. They contained 30 gallons each times six vessels, 180 gallons of water. What were those vessels used for? If you were a Jew at the time, everyday life made you unclean. You walk in the dirt, you touch an animal. If you use the bathroom, you offend your neighbor, you have to purify yourself. So Mary has a need, which in Jesus' formulation doesn't have much to do with him in being a savior of the world. He ends up fulfilling her request to do something. But in fulfilling that request, he turns a source of old tradition or old way of thinking or old identities and turns it into something brand new. Literally, out of the waters of Jewish purification, Christ now creates something living, which negates the old function it used to have. So Jesus solved the dilemma, but that meant a total abandonment of what was. And every person at that wedding was Jewish which meant it affected everyone who was in attendance at the time. And why is the symbolism so important? Why is this miracle so relevant? Because it was Jesus' first miracle. And whenever God puts something first, it's particular importance. Jesus is basically saying, hey, I'm now going to introduce everyone to the living God in your midst. But in order to accept what I have to offer, everything else you used to rely on for cleanliness, for thinking, for identity, is now abolished. Because the new miracle destroyed old function. So everyone at that wedding now had no choice. They could either realize the living God in their midst and drink of his good wine or leave. So you could stick to what you're used to but in turn, reject God in the process. And look at the funny part. Those water pots being used for purification, now that they're filled with wine, they're not water pots anymore. Now they're wine pots. And they were filled to the brim. Which means even if you tried to pour water into a 30-gallon filled wine pot, you can't do it because God has already changed it and now completely occupied the vessel you were used to. And here's the even dirtier part of the miracle. You could have been a wedding guest at the celebration and not realized Jesus was Jesus. You could have gotten drunk on God's good wine and not even realized it was God who caused the miracle to give you the wine you are now drinking. There may be many days where you wake up in the morning and say, God, I need a miracle, not realizing there was a driver texting or there was a train with an electrical malfunction or there was a plane flying overhead, which was meant to take you out, but God worked something in the background. He worked stuff out So your ordinary life, which you now say is miracle-less, 
is actually the result of hidden miracles in the background. When an atheist says something like, there is no God, and they are not immediately struck down in a bolt of lightning, that's a miracle. And again, the miracle formula, back to the glorification, John 2.11. Take away the wine, take away the wedding, take away all the symbolism. What does John 2.11 says? His disciples believed in him. And this was the inauguration of Jesus' miracle-making, to induce belief, to bring his disciples closer to him. So to reiterate, this miracle took before it gave. It took away an old Jewish identity before installing the reality of Jesus Christ. And be careful what you ask for because God may answer your request with a dirty miracle. Point number three. God can give you what you need, but you may give what's his to something else. God can give you what you need, but you may give what's his to something else. Let's turn to John 5, not too far away. So Jesus approaches the pool of Bethesda. Around the pool are many people who have various physical ailments, the crippled, the blind. And tradition has it that from season to season, an angel of God would come to the pool and stir the waters up. And the first person to touch the water after the angel stirred the waters up would be cured of their ailments. So when John 5 takes 6 to 7, Jesus sees a man afflicted with a physical ailment. And the text says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Do you wish to get well? That is a yes or no question. Do you wish to get well? The logical answer is yes. Yes. But what was the man's answer? He didn't say yes. He gave an explanation for his circumstance. He said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Here is why this situation rings so true to my experience. As a medical doctor, people come in to see me all the time. I've been in the place where I've been since January. Routinely, there are a couple people who are there every two weeks, every week, every month. And I always ask them a question. Do you wish to be well? 
the answer I never get is yes. Because here's the thing. In medicine, there's a difference between feeling better and being well. Feeling better takes you from being sick back to normal. But you can then engage in the same things which got you sick in the first place. You are therefore sick and able to feel better, and you go back. And prescription medication is usually a very quick route to accomplish that task. But if I ask someone, do you wish to be well? And they say yes. What that now means is that they are willing to engage in a complete paradigm shift of behavior. It's a new way of thinking. It's prophylactic and preventative. So you don't get sick in the first place. So when Jesus says, do you wish to get well? And the man explains his predicament. It can, when we use that in our lives, can express a comfortableness with a certain destructive pattern of behavior. Where we keep on getting sick and just want to feel better but never get well. So here's the thing. What if we're always walking into God's office in heaven and he's asking us, do you wish to be well? And we never say yes. We say, God, all I need is a million dollars. God, all I need is this co-worker to have a different job. God, all I need is all these material things. God, all I need is this one thing and then I can feel better. But the entire time, God is asking us, but do you wish to be well? And we never answer the question. Because here's an important point to realize. A miracle is always intended for you to be well. But if someone doesn't want to be well and hasn't answered yes to the question, the miracle may actually harm them and not help them. If the vessel in which you are going to receive God's miracle is cracked and God fills it up, the one thing that is intended to make you better is now going to seep out. If God intends to give you a miracle, but the vessel in which you intend to receive it, there's pollutants in it, and there's dangerous stuff in there that haven't been cleaned out. If God fills it up with water and you now drink it, you're going to get sick. And it's in this context we'll get to our final point in Luke 17, 11 to 19, where our theme verse comes from. So the text says, while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, 
they were cleansed. There's your miracle. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been cleansed, had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. So here's a tie-in. All ten lepers got a miracle. All ten were cleansed. But only one was made well. And this is the entire point. Because the miracle revealed what is the ultimate source of your worship. Ten lepers had leprosy for years. And look at the analogy. Ten is a number meaning completeness and totality, as in a completeness and totality of those in the world. They said, Jesus, Master. They used a term of reverence. They recognized who he was and called him by his proper name. So they recognized exactly what he could do. Jesus then gave them what they wanted, and they became cleansed removed from defilement or impurities. But of all the ten who were now cleansed, only one returned to glorify God. And that is the point. When God gave the other nine exactly what they wanted, they received the miracle they've been longing for. What did they do with it? They denied God's glory. And the one which did come back, Jesus told him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. The miracle actually destroyed the lives of nine lepers. Why? They now robbed God of his glory and have went about the rest of their lives saying, I've been touched by Jesus. But they were made to feel better. They weren't made well because they lacked the faith and the glorification of God. And what does well mean in Greek? It comes from the word sozo, which essentially means to save from destruction, to rescue someone from perishing, which is the end of the miracle formula. Because without the glorification of God, the miracle then robbed these nine of their eternal salvation and life with God because they wouldn't glorify him. And therein lies the ultimate danger of any miracle. Because God may give you what you need, but you may give what's his glory to something else. For what does it profit us if you gain your miracle, but if you lose God? This miracle took, away lepro took leprosy away before it gave cleanliness. The leper should have been careful what they asked for because God answered their request with a dirty miracle. And God gave them exactly what they wanted, but nine stole God's glory away from them. Now here's a central point. 
you may be asking yourself, when is it my time for a miracle? When is God going to fill up my vessel with something righteous and pure? But the greatest miracle of all is the fact that we serve a loving and caring God who is righteous and just. And he looked down upon his creation and said, there is nothing in their own ability they could do to reconcile themselves back to me. So God pierced the veil of our reality. And the word became flesh and incarnated as Jesus Christ. And Jesus walked among us and did many miracles in our reality. Then the stakes were raised as Jesus stood hung there on the cross. The deceiver waged a full-scale battle against him. He came armed with a massive army and used flaming arrows tainted with sin and death and tried to tell God that he should give in, he should give up. They're not worth it. These humans, they deserve nothing. They can do nothing for you. But instead of giving in to the seer's temptations, it is God who gave himself up for all of us. It is a God who has so much divine love and compassion for his fallen creation that he still says yes to us when we say no to him. It is a divine miracle that everyone here and everyone who is willing to follow Christ can receive. And that miracle says if you humble yourself before God and believe in the one who has already given you a miracle, who has already opened up the doorway to the Father, who has already paved the way for you to be reconciled to God, that is a free gift that is not dirty. And all you must do is recognize the deity of Christ and embrace the one who gives you a miracle and has given you a miracle before you were even born. For you, for everyone you love, and the entire world that is out there, they are already the recipients of the greatest miracle of all. So if you've ever wondered, when is my time for a miracle? If you've ever wondered, when, am I, when is my cup going to, to runneth over? The simple answer is, you already have him, and his name is Jesus. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit C H E sadafal.com